In my recent On My Radar piece titled Camp Kotak Notes on China and MMT, I shared my key takeaways from the gathering of more than 50 economists, Fed officials, chief investment officers, traders, where we were all joined together at the annual fishing event where we ate well, uh, a lot of red wine, and we fished in the northern part of Maine. It was a beautiful place to be. Collectively, the room together manages more than $1 trillion in assets. And I have to tell you, I felt a bit like a kid in Disney World. It was uh, fun, exciting, mentally stimulating, uh, and I hope to give you a little bit of a taste of that today. One of the highlights for me was the pre-dinner panel, or perhaps better said, the impassioned debate on modern monetary theory, the subject of today's podcast. Sam Rines was at the center of that debate and has joined me on the call today with you. Sam is the chief economist at Avalon Advisors. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Bloomberg and Reuters. He was a student fellow at the American Institute of, for Economic Research. He has a BA in economics from Georgetown and a master's in economics from the University of New Hampshire. I first got to know Sam a year ago. We were sitting together at the post-dinner poker table my partner, co-portfolio manager, John Malden, walked up to the table, and he looked angry. He interrupted, and a deep voice said, who is Sam Rines? We all looked up and were shocked. Someone pointed to Sam. Malden approached with money in hand and slammed a $100 bill on the table. And then Malden then smiled, looked at Sam, and said, son, I want to thank you. I read your letter every day, and it's exceptional. It's worth far more than the $100 I just gave you, and I want you to know that I'm grateful. Thank you, he said, and he slowly walked away. The table responded and screamed, no. Sam sat there, nearly out of chips and eliminated, eliminated from the game. And then, Sam, you put that $100, pushed it to the dealer, got $100 worth of new chips. And for me, that was a really fun moment, and it was a nice beginning to our friendship. Sam, I want to thank you for joining me on the call today, and um, let's jump in. You're, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on Camp Kotak and uh, how long you've been attending and some of your key takeaways from this year's meeting. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Steve. Uh, so th this was my second year at Camp Kotak, uh, last year being my first. Uh, always a great time, great conversations, great poker, and obviously great wine. Um, but <clears throat> probably the most interesting takeaway for me, you know, setting aside MMT for a moment, the, the most interesting takeaway from this gathering, from my perspective, was when we all sat down and wrote down what we would choose to do if there was a, if we had one wish to boost medium to longer term growth in the U.S. And the number one thing that came up one way or another. Uh, was education. I thought that that was a really interesting outcome from a bunch of great thinkers in the room and probably the best way to invest in the long term uh, for the U.S. Uh, so I thought that that was a pretty interesting outcome. Obviously, there were, you know, every, you know, there was everything from improving preschool to eliminating student debt to K through 12 education improvement uh, to doing more with the trades and two-year uh, college and not four-year college. Uh, there were a number of different ideas, but you know, the, 
almost the majority centered around education. And I, I thought that was a, a pretty interesting outcome and and could be one very useful for uh, increasing growth longer term in the U.S., but also uh, if that many people in the room are thinking about it, it's, uh, it's indicative of a, of a wider kind of, I would say, bubbling up among economists. Well, thanks. That gives, uh, I think that gives the listener a pretty good feel for the just the broad scope of the types of uh, conversations that happen and, and uh, uh, right on towards education. Um, you were with a group uh, of uh, a panelists prior to dinner uh, on Friday evening, and the argument was you were tasked with uh, making the base case for uh, in favor of MMT. And in the room, of course, are former Fed officials. Uh, we've got uh, uh, law uh, that are obstacles to the path to enabling it, it, it to work. But before I get in, explain in layman's uh, terms, what is modern monetary theory, or as one of the attendees said, the uh, magic money tree? <laughs> how, how, how would you explain it? Sure. So I think the easiest way to explain it is that it's a framework for understanding the way the world works, uh, uh, much like you know the Keynesian economics or Austrian economics. It's simply a way to view the world through a specific lens and then attempting to make uh, sense of it, right? Economists like to have models and then use those models to explain everything and then argue about whose model is correct. And in a lot of ways, in not in a lot of ways, but that's modern monetary theory is simply one of those, right? It's, it's a abstraction from reality, like everything. There's stylized facts that economists use, but it's a framework for approaching the world. And it's a framework that differs in uh, some pretty significant ways and in subtle ways as well. But the major way is that it does make some assumptions and stylizes the central bank and the treasury or the government as being pretty much the same thing. Um, and that framework allows for higher levels of debt to be issued. Uh, and that's really where a lot of the angst and visceral hatred of MMT comes from is that the framework does generally allow for a much higher level of stimulus and a much higher level of debt uh, than uh, traditional economics would. So give me an example. What's what's one example of uh, a policy that, that and how we get there uh, that can be taken uh, so that money is essentially printed uh, out of thin air and finds its way into the system? And how does this differ from what we've experienced with QE1, QE2, QE3, zero interest rate policy? Yeah. So what's really interesting about it is it really doesn't differ that much from quantitative easing, uh, from what we see in Japan, from what we see in Europe. It's actually a pretty good framework for understanding exactly what has happened in Japan and Europe. Uh, Japan has yield curve targeting invented in the United States post-World War II, uh, but right now they're targeting uh, a maximum 10-year yield of 0%. Um, so they are kind of monetizing the debt, kind of not, depends on how you look at it. But basically, Japan is doing a version of MMT, or the framework is very close to MMT, where the government issues debt, Japan's central bank buys that debt, 
um, at a zero percent interest rate in hope in hopes to boost economic growth, uh, then raising and lowering the uh, VAT tax to uh, kind of pull back the stimulus or allow the stimulus to roll on. Japan has currently, uh, I would say, increased the VAT tax a little too aggressively um, to allow that to flow through, to allow the stimulus from the central bank to flow through to the actual underlying economy in any real way. Um, so that's that's an example of exactly what the MMT framework would call for. Uh, in Europe, it's a little bit different, mostly because the largest uh, economy and entity, Germany, has largely not done much in terms of fiscal stimulus. Um, but the central bank has done a significant amount of stimulating the economy, buying that incremental debt, buying uh, corporate debt, and attempting to get that inflation rate up while you've had the pullback in government spending. So you've kind of had a, um, I would say, a, a tug and a pull there where you haven't quite seen the MMT framework come through in a way that could happen. Uh, if you were to see some fiscal loosening in Europe, like we're beginning to hear rumblings of with Germany, um, combined with quantitative easing from uh, the European Central Bank, that would be another version of MMT. So what they've been doing is one foot on the gas pedal, one foot on the brake, and not making a lot of forward progress. And yeah. what you're saying, the changes just this week that Germany's proposing to stimulate uh, the economy is uh, less left foot off the brake, right foot on the accelerator to uh, to drive things forward. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like flooring the Ferrari in neutral, right? It makes a lot of noise. Everybody kind of wonders whether or not you know something bad's going to happen, but it, it just goes nowhere. Um, the well, the worry the worry that everybody goes to is when you print this money and you move it into the system. So in 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 QE one and two and three, basically bailed out the banks, bought the mortgages, uh, bought the bonds, stuck them on the the balance sheet. Currently, uh, we're spending a trillion dollars more a year in the U.S. Uh, with our budget than we're taking in in tax revenue. So we're financing that by printing money and buying bonds that are issued through the banks, and, and, and that money's finding its way into the spending to cover U.S. expenses. So I guess we're really doing that to, to some degree right now. But what we were talking about is um, you know different forms of what MMT – so debt's a big drag. Debts were at this end of this long-term debt super cycle. The last time we've been here was in the in the 30s, and and to me, it's kind of the root cause of what we're all trying to globally to to get out of because debt just chokes growth. Um, so MMT might be some examples that came up were were uh, the uh, make America's pension system great again. Right? So we have a crisis with pensions being significantly underfunded, less than 50% across the country, and some states worse than others. Um, so how do we how do how do we follow through with the promises that we've made school teachers and police officers and firefighters? How, how do we state workers? How do we how do we come through it? Because it's it's just um, just it's impossible with with where the funding is. So what does that look like, and what does that mean? Uh, to you know, to to how it affects the economy. This balance of fighting deflation, which we've been fighting, to these this printing of money, which ultimately, in the end, uh, runs great inflation risk if you don't get it right. So I'm rambling. Give me your thoughts. 
Yeah, so I, I do think that we're probably heading for some sort of uh, pension crunch. Uh, I'm not sure that it'll be one big pension crisis all at the same time, but I do think that there will be some sort of pension crunch. Um, the, the key there is that it doesn't take much for you know, the federal government to theoretically bail out the pension plans, you know, overall. I mean, it's a lot of money, yes, but it doesn't take a lot of political uh, will, so to speak. You know, you're not going to have to really force that through. That's going to be something that's likely bipartisan and likely plays to that MMT framework, right? If we are going into a crisis, that is an easy way to uh, do a stimulus package that looks like it's for the people, not for the banks, and it's something where the federal government can take something that is an ex you know a fairly expensive liability on the state and local level, uh, and finance it at what is a ridiculously low rate of you know the next crisis, say the, you know the ten year falls to sub one percent, you could easily see the federal government financing uh, bailout of the pensions at you know one percent or less than 1% um, or even, you know, lower than that, depending on how they decide to do it with, you know, the Federal Reserve doing some form of quantitative easing or some form of quantitative purchase generally. And that, that to me is the power of the MMT framework. It's not necessarily that it's a good idea. It's not necessarily that it won't lead to inflation that we then have to combat. Uh, but it is something, but the framework allows for things that are both politically politically wanted, uh, politically acceptable to both sides of the aisle, uh, and something that, in the end, it's very difficult to argue that you shouldn't do something when you basically are getting money for free. Right? It's very difficult to argue that Germany shouldn't build a bunch of roads when they get paid uh, to when they get paid to borrow the money. Uh, so I think there's the argument that the the argument behind uh, the behind MMT is extremely powerful, particularly at very low interest rates and particularly for populist ideas and elected officials. Exactly. So yeah, you go out the backyard and grab some money off the money tree. It's um, that's that's attractive. So the 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 reality is we've been doing this in some form or the other here. Uh, maybe in a beginning stage, it's been uh, more widely practiced uh, in in Japan, but in different forms. Um, it, it so the consensus is, and the consensus in the room was that this is where this is where quantitative uh, uh, easing is going next. Uh, that that this is what's this is how we're going to deal with the situation and how we'll now combat slowdowns in the economy and recession and and uh, um, it's inevitable this is going to happen. You agree? I, I do think it's inevitable that it's go that we're going to shift toward an MMT framework. One because it's. Uh, I think it's the way to do monetary policy from a political perspective. I think we've we've done quantitative easing from the purely Keynesian perspective, and that was extremely unpopular. Uh, that led to uh, protests, literally protests in the streets uh, about the one percent. And I think I think that's politically untenable for both sides um, during the next crisis. I also think that it allows for 
uh, projects that tend to bring the country together in ways. Um, and the great, that, the great I mean, infrastructure exactly, bill. Exactly. Uh, you know, let's let's go to Mars and you know let's let's finance it with MMT. You know, the Fed will buy the debt. Um, you know, it, there was a quote at Kotak. You know, not you know. Let us go to Mars, not because it is easy, but because it is free. Um, I would say that that makes a lot of sense. It's something we can rally around. It's easy to say, look at the technologies we got from that we attained from going to the moon. Um, imagine what we can attain if we really make a push to put a man on Mars. And it kind of sounds a little bit ridiculous, but it's something for the U.S. to rally around in a time where growth is slowing. Or you know even more than slowing, um, depending on. So there's no end to yeah. there's no end to where you can take this. You could say debt to GDP is the on balance sheet uh, debt to GDP is north of 100 percent in the U.S. Let's uh, monetize 40 percent of uh, uh, 22 trillion dollars and and let's get it down to uh, a lower level. Let's. Um, uh, expand the infrastructure, right? Fix all the bridges, fix all the roads, put a lot of people to work, and, and we print that money. So, so it's almost no end to when you start getting addicted to the to the, the magic stuff. That, that where does where does it stop, and what are the risks? And uh, you know, my, I guess my view is I think it's inevitable that this is coming, and that ultimately, what the other side of this. As uh, uh, my friend Bill White, who used to be the uh, uh, chief economist at the Bank of International Settlements, said at the Molden Conference in the May, in, in May was, uh, we got to work our way and we'll figure this out. Uh, and in the end, uh, you know, it's going to be bumpy along the way. It's going to get very bumpy with big volatility uh, because things have to happen. Laws have to change in order for some of this to be able to be implemented. Um, and his comment was, in the end, there will be inflation, which is an entire different investment regime than what we've experienced the last 36 years with interest rates going from 15% down to 1%. Yeah, and, and so I would I would push back a little bit there, um, particularly on the inflation front, because I think the inflationary aspects of this are significantly down the road. Uh, bailing out pensions and running up uh, and significantly increasing the debt by doing that has legitimately a zero impact. Yeah, it's fighting um, a deflationary battle that that is just ongoing and continues to be ahead of us. Exactly. It, particularly with the pensions, right? Because the pensions are an obligation that people are anticipating anyway, and so they're consuming. It's not going to con change their consumption habits. Um, so I would say that you know the, the demand pull there is going to be minimal at, at, or neutral at best. Um, the, the interesting part about it to me is that we have a significant demographic, de deflationary demographic shock um, over the next 10 to 20 years simply because of the boomers beginning to roll out of the workforce. And I think that's significantly underappreciated, um, particularly by economists when we look at exactly what inflation dynamics look like down the road, because we really haven't seen much in the way of that boomer retirement flowing through the system yet. We've seen a little bit of it, but we really haven't seen much of it. And once we begin to see that, it's going to be a significant headwind um, to growth in the U.S., but 
also to inflation dynamics in the U.S. And to a certain degree, I think we, you know, so that's that pushes any any inflationary consequences significantly down the road, right? It, ma it might mask them in a way. That's a, one way to phrase it. But mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of the uh, deficit spending within an MMT framework. Uh, would largely be combating that deflationary shock. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that it's something we would need to be worried about immediately, right? Maybe down the road and paying attention for it, but I don't think it's something that would be an immediate impact. Um, yeah, the risk is it throws in this moral hazard of, uh, you, you know, your debts don't matter because we're going to be able to paper out, print, and, and walk our way out of it. Uh, so how far does how far does it extend, and what 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 path does that get you? What path does that get you on? It, it, that's a that's a that's a great point. Um, I think the, the problem is that we solved moral hazard for the banks. We didn't solve it for uh, pensions, right? And so we're just sticking to the pension side. Mm -hmm. uh, and we've you know we've perpetuated the, and maybe we've solved that problem, but I highly doubt it. But we've perpetuated the moral hazard for banks for decades, right? We bailed, you know, we had the SNL crisis bailed out, bailed out, bailed out. Mm -hmm. um, we've never really had a bailout of the pension system, and if we're going to um, talk about moral hazard, I think it's one of those where, sure, we will bail out the pension system, but that's a, you know, maybe it's a one-time thing where we then make sure that the pensions that, you know, are still in existence or popping up uh, have a significantly tighter reins around them. Um, and then, you know, the, the moral hazard of bailing out the pensions once is a little bit easier to defend than bailing out the banks, you know, a third or fourth time. Um, it's it's one of All those right. where I, I don't know that it's a, I don't know that the moral hazard argument is uh, one that's all that powerful, uh, particularly uh, since we've perpetuated uh, the moral hazard argument for the banks. Yes, you're, yeah, exactly. So you're saying it's not an obstacle uh, in yeah. in from through that lens, it's not an obstacle, and I I totally agree. Um, the, the the other the other point that I'd I'd bring up um, about the the level of debt is that right now we're we're paying about one and a half percent of mm -hmm. GDP um, to uh, finance our debt. That's the interest as a percent of GDP on the federal uh, outlays. That's equivalent to what we were spending. Uh, in the late 70s, um, early 80s, uh, so we and far below what we were spending in the 90s uh, during the boom. Uh, so I think we have a significantly long runway uh, to what actually matters in terms of the debt level. Uh, yeah, before that starts squeezing, yeah, mm -hmm. the carrying cost is so low, and if you assume that interest rates stay here or even decline a little bit with the demographics and slower growth. Uh, it significantly increases the amount of carry that you can have as an economy. Well, anybody that's refinanced their mortgage and and also now getting another shot to refinance their mortgage knows that that's uh, that's really good for the bottom line uh, as far as spend. Um, which switches to a whole different side. You know, we, we're we're at. Um, uh, I, I've been in the camp that uh, the 10 years going to 1%, the 30 years going to 2%, and uh, within the last couple of weeks, the 30-year yield dipped below 2%, and we hit as low as roughly 1.45-ish uh, in uh, in the 10-year yield. Um, but still, relative to everybody else in the world, including uh, Greece and Portugal and Spain, 
there's 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 no better yield. We we globally have starved pensioners and savers. Uh, we talk with a lot of individuals. You work with your firm works with a lot of individual investors. And it is, what do you do with that savings money and that safe money? So, uh, speaking of interest rates, you real to to me the MMT throttle lever that that the the Fed and the government could pull is is a better lever to pull than to try to drive rates uh, that's happening in the rest of the bulk of the world to negative interest rates, uh, where where you got to pay the government to invest in their bond. This is this is just insane. Uh, to me, so we're, you know, that that lever of MMT seems a lot more palatable than than uh, the unintended consequence of starving the pensions and starving the savers uh, because of uh, uber low interest rates. Your thoughts? So I would I I agree um, to a certain extent on that level. The the problem that I have with starving the savers and starving, you know, with the with that notion is that there's always equities, right? There, you know, the, the fixed income market's not the only place that you can put money, and you can actually get some pretty, you know, you can fifty more than fifty percent of the S and P 500 stocks yield more than the dividend payers. It, yeah, yeah, you could get four percent on high dividend payers, and mm-hmm. yeah, and so and so starving starving the savers to to me is one of those where if you have lower interest rates, you should have you know, I mean, a better economy. You should have better equity returns, uh, regardless of you know what your, you know, your free money is, right? You know, U.S. Treasury is quote unquote free money, and I think the you know the ability to save using kind of the, the free return from a government bond is 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 largely over, um, mm-hmm. just in general. I, so I'm not I'm not entirely convinced by the, by the argument that we're starving savers because we've had phenomenal equity returns, right? So if people were saving um, and paying attention, you know, they actually did very very well. Yes, you know, the the dividend returns might or you know the uh, call it fixed returns might not have been fantastic, but there, there are some stunning returns in the equity markets. Yeah, but hasn't um, hasn't, hasn't it brought tomorrow's returns forward to today? When I look at um, just just the the markets relative to their long term trends, there's a high probability when you get this far extended above its its growth trend uh, that that the forward returns for five and ten years are kind of less than one percent annualized. So, and valuations by most markers are at a level. So so where where does that you know where where does that leave an investor? Yeah. And so I think it, it leaves you as having to look underneath the surface of uh, the actual of the actual indexes uh, to a large extent because yes the overall index is exceedingly expensive uh, but when you look at value stocks for instance they're exceedingly cheap relative to history and yeah totally uh, correct and so and it, dividend payers about, exactly and so if you know you tend to have you know value tends to do well when you have a falling dollar. Uh, and you know the dollar tends to fall when you have better growth outside of the U.S. Um, growth stocks tend to do well when you know the U.S. is the only place to invest, and you know people are searching at the searching for that limited amount of growth. I think it's searching for that re- regime change, right? I don't think that the next 10 years are going to be devastating to all of the equity market, uh, much like the early 2000s, right? Those were yeah, boring, but value stocks, that. but value stocks were on fire. 
Uh-huh. You had great. You, it wasn't. It wasn't the market in general or equities in in general. It was just a subset of the market that, because of the cap weighted methodology, they got you 48% exposure to technology and routers and those sorts of things. Uh, where prior to the uh, tech melt up in the late 1990s, you were somewhere around 17% exposure to tech. So yeah. yes. So the the problem wasn't. It was. And that's what worries me too. Is that so many investors have gone to you know the passive cap weighted index funds, uh, and they're they're all loaded on that same side of that that similar trade. But you know that's that's that's, that's yeah. what it is. So I like I like yeah. what you said. And that's a great point of optimism for everybody yeah. because cool. there are ways to seek returns and find it. Just make sure you handling yeah. your your allocations. Yeah, and it plays into the the framework. Of, if the MMT framework becomes kind of the global norm. And you have fiscal stimulus with monetary stimulus. You should have a reacceleration, at least to a modest extent, in global growth, which should, you know, and assuming you know the trade war eventually peters out, that should allow for the dollar to fall, and you begin to see a regime change in uh, what leads the stock market. Okay, that's great, and I love that optimism. Uh, give me your thoughts on what the Fed is thinking. Uh, you've written recently, uh, so just just your your general thoughts currently where we sit and um, and uh, what you think is likely path forward here in the next uh, six months. Sure, uh, path forward for the uh, Fed next. Oh, six gen- gen- oh. Yeah, for the Fed, what they're thinking, and also, uh, yeah, I was kind of blurred that question. Also, your your thoughts around global economy is clearly slowing. How do we look here in the U.S. and and what's your outlook for best guess recession timing? Ooh, so I would say the Fed uh, cuts uh, 75 basis points over the next four meetings. Uh, that gets uh, the U.S. to a point where it's modestly stimulative, just below the neutral rate. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's important for the Fed. I think that's going to end up being the bogey. Uh, in the meantime, I, I truly believe Powell's going to try to hold the line at uh, – 50 to 75 basis points of total easing, but isn't going to be able to hold it. I, I think he's going to be a little more hawkish than markets want, markets expect. I think that's going to be one of the the bigger stories is um, that Trump ends up shooting the Powell Hawk at some point. Hmm. Hmm. Um, for the US, <laughs> that's a great title for your next piece. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I might have to write that I'm on the road for the rest of the week, but I'm going to have to put that up there. Um, <laughs> What I, what I find interesting about the U.S. economy relative to the global economy is that the U.S. consumer is truly the consumer of last resort. Uh, the U.S. consumer yes. can hold on for a very long time while the rest of the world uh, swoons. This, that, to me, is something that is underappreciated, it's, and it's something that is powerful. Uh, wages, as long as wages can stay uh, above a 3 or at a 3% growth rate, I think the U.S. is in good shape. I think the consumer spends most of that money, uh, particularly mm-hmm. the lower end consumer, which is or the lower end of the skill spectrum, uh, is beginning to finally see some pretty substantial uh, gains in terms of wage gains. Uh, that is all spent. There's very very little that is saved there. So that's a big kick to the U.S. economy. So as long as we continue to see um, wages move higher, even if we see uh, only modest employment gains uh, from here, I, I do think the U.S. economy can hold on. I think the U.S. economy slows to 1% to 1.5% growth. Maybe we uh, see another 2% print. I think that's going to be a little difficult. 
uh, given the fixed investment that appears to be uh, turning negative. Um, but I do think that we can see one to one and a half percent growth for the next uh, nine months, nine to 12 months. I think after that, it becomes a little tenuous. Um, so going into the election is significant slowing unless we get some sort of uh, fiscal stimulus. Rest of the world, I think it's highly contingent on what uh, we do with the trade war. Uh, I think Europe is getting off pretty easy here. Um, you know, the U.S. has kind of put them on a back burner in the trade war. I think if we do get something done with China or at least get a detente, significant detente with China, Europe's going to be the next on the list. And that's a big problem for the global economy. It's a big problem for Germany, big problem for France, big problem for the Euro project in general. Uh, and that that's something to pay very close attention to because that can get out of control uh, pretty quickly. So I'm not I'm not pessimistic about the global economy. I think it's already in a recession and it's um, unlikely to emerge um, anytime soon. But I do think uh, that you're likely going to see it move sideways and not get much deeper from here. I agree with you, and I really appreciate your comments, and I particularly appreciate that you've given some markers for us all to consider to keep an eye on uh, down the path. Uh, I'm going to read you every day, uh, and uh, I'm appreciative of you, and thank you so much, Sam, for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Steve.